Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hi, it's Susan. How are you doing? Everybody hanging in there? Beckett and I are fine. Our families are fine. We're all healthy. We're all working from home. And both of us hope that you're doing as well as possible during this time. For this week's episode, we're going to go into the Wayback Machine, way back to our 2012 and back to 1912. This week marks the 108th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic. In 2012, the 100th anniversary, Beckett and I covered Margaret Molly Brown, and we also took a field trip to the Titanic exhibit at Kansas City's Union Station. I know what you're thinking, Susan, the Titanic, that's a disaster. This is not a time to be talking about disasters. Well, maybe it's a time to be talking about this one. Particularly, let's talk about Margaret Brown. Margaret Brown was brave and smart. She kept her wits about her, and she helped people during the sinking of the boat. She saved lives. She did what she could while others were doing what they could to help people survive the sinking of the Titanic. That's a really great inspiration for us during our current times. We've remastered both episodes and blended them together. First up. Margaret Molly Brown. And here's your 30-second summary. Paul Bunyan, Superman, Cinderella, and Molly Brown are all figures of legend and myth. Only one of them has a reality that is far more dramatic than anything Hollywood could manufacture. Her life is an example of truth being greater than fiction. The Let's talk about Molly Brown. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1867, Johann Strauss's Blue Danube Waltz was first performed. Jesse James was Robin Banks in the Midwest. Congress approved the Lincoln Memorial. The U.S. buys Alaska from Russia for $7 million. Queen Victoria has the foundation laid for Royal Albert Hall. Ready-mix paint is patented. And on July 18th, 1867, Margaret Tobin was born. Let's tell you a Wild West tall tale. Once upon a time... A tiny baby entered this world in a most dramatic fashion. Born during a terrible storm of tornadoes and floods, her mother dies. And she's raised on the goat's milk by drunken father Seamus. She determined that she is going to move to Leadville and marry a rich man. She becomes a saloon girl to pay the bills. And one day meets poor minor J.J. Brown. This is not the man she had envisioned for herself. She was going to marry money. Until one day, J.J. Brown strikes gold and she decides he's the man for her. They make piles and piles of money, which she stores in her wood stove. Until J.J. Brown comes home in a drunken stupor and lights the stove on fire, sending all that not-hard-earned money up in smoke. Oh, no! Her dreams are washed away. But have no fear, J.J. goes outside and finds a brand-new gold mine. They're back in the money, and they decide to move to Denver. Where these rough diamonds are not accepted by Denver society. And so, they go to Europe, where crowned heads were charmed by her and polished her up. On her way back home, she boards the Titanic, 
where she single-handedly saves the lives of women and children in the lifeboat, giving them her clothes, stripping down to bare nothing in the frigid air, keeping their spirits up <laughs> by singing until they're all rescued, proclaiming herself the unsinkable Molly Brown. She returns to Denver to a hero's welcome and reunites with her love, J.J. Brown, where they live happily ever after. The end. Except that wonderful tale is only about 5% true. Hmm. Let's talk about the real Molly Brown, Margaret Tobin Brown. Margaret Brown was born to John and Johanna Tobin. She was the middle child of six of their in their blended family. Um, so they were born. She was born in Hannibal, Missouri. Did you know she was from Mark Twain's hometown? I know. How cool is that? She played in the same woods that Tom Sawyer did. <gasps> Ooh. Hannibal, Missouri sure knows that she's from there. You can actually still tour her childhood home. How cool is that? It's on Butler Street. It's a four-room house, and eight people lived in this four-room house, so it's quite modest. But they were doing okay for that town, and for Irish immigrants, which is what they were, they rode the wave of immigration over from the potato famine and landed in the heartland. Mm -hmm. Now, it's still the era of the Irish being marginalized a little bit. Like, if we hear that accent, the pay scale is going to be different kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But they were all together. It was a very strong Catholic community. And they were all together. And they were no worse or better off than their neighbors. And, you know, it was a nice place to grow up. They all looked out for each other in this community. Her father was a manual laborer. And he also um, had some turns as a riverboat office clerk. But he was very ambitious for his children, and he instilled in all of them a work ethic. Yeah, that, and the education was very important to this family. They All the kids got tripped down to the schoolhouse and got educated through the eighth grade, which was pretty typical for the time in their class. It was their Aunt Mary O'Leary that was the teacher. Aunt Mary O'Leary. Good one. Thank you. <laughs> my kids can't stand my, I like, I say Patrick's Day. They're like, shut up, mom. <laughs> I love it. Anyway. Well, so they had, she had a typical childhood. You know, they played in the creek. Her brother-in-law had a candy store, for goodness sake. How sweet is that? This is like the stuff that sweet American dreams are made out of, this yeah. story. And little gangs of kids, a la 1970s, you know, showing up at someone's house for bread and butter as a snack or yeah. whatever. Um, but everyone in this time and in this place was expected to work early and help the family out. Um, so Maggie, can we talk Maggie. about the name? Yes, yeah, so let's talk about the name. Here's the thing. She was born Margaret Tobin. She was called Maggie in, amongst her friends and her family. She was never called Molly. Yeah, nobody, not nobody ever called her Molly until after her death, um, a man wrote a book called Timberline in which the character's name was Molly. And that's what stuck, which is very strange. She was it, never Molly during her life. No, and it's just kind of weird, though, where we have to refer to her that because if we said Margaret Brown, people would be like, who? Yeah. Yeah. So from now on, we've got Maggie and we've got Margaret and no Molly. Yeah. That's okay with you. Bold. Brazen. (laughs) So at 13, Maggie and a lot of other Irish girls went to work for a dollar a day at the local cigar factory. Exactly what you want your seventh grader to be doing all day. Yeah, it's dirty, hard, sweaty work, but that's what they all did. It was what, what happened. You went to school and then you started, you started working. And there was no, did you, okay, this shocked me to read this. Okay, now, there's efforts before this, but there's no federal child labor law that stuck until 1938. 
And that's only because, you know, during the Depression, men would work for child wages, so why would you hire the child? Like, basically, it was kind of like, well, I guess, you know, it's de facto that way anyway. But isn't that a long time after I thought it was? Yeah, I I would think so. I would think so, too. So this could be the way that her life would just go. She would work until she got married, and then she'd raise some kids who would go to the mill or the... Or the cigar factory at 13 and blah, 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 blah. But for one key event, when she was 18, her brother Daniel, who had gone out west, sent for her to come keep house for him. In Leadville, Colorado. So so Maggie and her sister Helen boarded the train and went off to Leadville. Yeah, once upon a time, some miners found gold in Leadville, and the rush was on, and alongside the gold was silver. At the early days, it was all, you know, how it is, luck and, you know, gumption, like that show on the Discovery Channel, Gold Rush. Mm -hmm. It's like dudes scraping the ground for some treasure. That's right. And Um, they worked hard. Yeah, it's it's just like some men in a dream. In Leadville, you know, you could live large. The first miners that struck it big, show struck it big. By the time Maggie got there... It was basically syndicates. Mostly big companies had hold of the mining operations. The the easy pickings had long since disappeared. The you know, you could just find a nugget on the ground or yeah. you know. Easy you had to have equipment, you had to have teams of men and things. You had to have education in mining yeah. and geology. It's not brain it's not it wasn't a brainless pursuit. Yeah. So the miners, instead of being entrepreneurs now, are employees. It had become more really of a pioneer town than a rootin' tootin'. Wild West gold mining experience. Mm-hmm. Maggie and her brother Daniel set to work. Um, he went to the mines, and she, she worked in a department store in the drapery department. Which I mean, she had this work ethic that she had got from her childhood in Hannibal, watching her parents and working in the cigar factory. So of course she went to work. So far from being the saloon girl that not we talked about earlier, even close not to saloon close. girl. The reality, of course, is so much more boring. You know, Daniel made about two dollars and fifty cents a day, and Maggie earned about a dollar a day. So let's put it this way: two people had to work a ten-hour day each to buy one bag of flour. So it's not glamorous times. No, not at all. It's not wealthy times. But she's she. Would dream of marrying someone that had money. Oh, yeah. That was her. She was determined. That was her goal. She wanted to be the one that lifted her family out of poverty. Mm -hmm. Um, And, like, the class of people she saw driving in these fine carriages and shopping in her store in these $40 dresses they had bought in Newport or, Mm -hmm. you know, New York City or somewhere. Um, She had this wish. Her big dream was to take her father out of his grueling manual labor and give him some leisure time. That was her greatest ambition. That's that's a wonderful dream to, to have. It's to help Pa. But true love came calling. It sure did in the form of Jim Brown. Um, she fell in love with him, and she she had that dream. She wanted to marry rich, and old J.J. wasn't rich at all at the time. But he was irresistible and charming and social like she was herself. Like, everybody knew who he was. Everybody mm-hmm. knew who she was. They were a good match. This, yeah. was, this was a social match within their their circle. It was well, a big deal. Dang it! Now what's she supposed to do? Well, and I actually, I love this quote. She said, this is her words. She said, I wanted a rich man, but I love Jim Brown. She she admits it. How honest is that? Here's this suitable, Catholic, lovable person wrecking her big dreams. So she finds, she marries Jim Brown and goes from cooking for her brother to moving into Jim's cabin. 
and cook it for him. But they were happy. They were happy. Now, uh, Maggie was 19 years old, and he was 32 when they were married, so there's a bit of an age difference. But I thought he was very handsome. Obviously, we'll put a picture up on our show notes, but he's a very handsome man. He shared her heritage, even though he was from Pennsylvania, a different, you know, a different part of the country, but they also had the same faith. Um, now, he was no mere minor. He was actually a superintendent, and he had studied for years engineering, geology. This is no manual laborer, really. Mm-hmm. Although he hadn't made his name yet, he had been making connections and a name for himself. Mm-hmm. If there was a problem, he was the guy that could rig it to work. You know, he was the guy you need right. to have around. Right. He was pretty valuable. So they moved out of town to a two-room cabin, and they charmingly named... Stumptown. <laughs> it was, I mean, this was... If they... If Leadville was r- rugged... Stumptown was wild. They had one pump in the middle of town for everyone to get their water from. But they did have a few saloons because, you know, priorities. That's right. And everything. Um, they truly began housekeeping in a modest way, but to give you an indication that they're not at the bottom, the very first thing they did is hire a servant to help with the housekeeping. Okay, so we're not at the bottom because Mm-mm. we have a servant in the house. And they started to educate themselves a little bit more. They hired tutors um, to educate them. I mean, they were already educated-ish, mm-hmm. but reading and literature, um, they wanted to round themselves out some more. Yeah, she never stopped learning. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, she studied piano and singing, too. Mm-hmm. So not only just practical things, certainly not. Her whole life she was determined to better herself, and so was her husband. It was definitely a good match. And she let the, the maid... Study with them as well. At five days a week, they studied. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was she wasn't just looking out for herself to better herself. She wanted to be- better this woman that was working in her home as well. Yep. Remember that. That's the Molly Brown that you need to remember. Now, as is very common in this day and age, when you get married, probably within a year, you're going to have a baby. And that's exactly what happened. Their first baby came along. His name is Lawrence. Palmer Brown, and he was born about a year after they were married. And you know what's funny? Her daughter came after. Her daughter named Ellen, but called Helen after her sister. Wikipedia, right now, as of this taping, says these children are named Franklin and Kay, which proves once again you should never use Wikipedia. Never, ever, ever. Do your research first. Go to Wikipedia for quick facts and to say, oh, no, that's wrong. Wikipedia bad. (laughs) So, almost her entire family moved to Leadville, um, which is awesome. So, the whole family is now out west, and that's another very common story. Mm-hmm. As one person, like, laid the groundwork, the rest of the family would come join. Right. That happened in Laura Ingalls Wilder, too. They'd mm-hmm. keep coming across family members who were slightly ahead of them. It was interesting, um, part of the Wild West. Yeah, settling. and it's kind of her doing what she wanted to do to bring her family back together. This was a tight family, mm-hmm. and she wanted to help take care of them, and this was kind of a way to sort of do that. So, so she was more well-off than most miners' wives, but nowhere near the meteoric rise from the legend. Like, nobody went outside and put a magic pickaxe in the wall and gold fell out. No, it was hard work. <laughs> it was. And it was years. Education that led to smart moves. It had nothing to do with dumb luck. And very, very characteristic of Margaret. Her whole life, again, she took it upon herself. She was a little bit well off, and so she organized soup kitchens and charity clothing drives for the poor miners of her town. It really seems like that Hannibal help your neighbor thing mm-hmm. really sunk in. Oh, I and she carries that through her entire life. 
Now, the country went through a bit of a Great Depression in 1893. It was called the Panic of 1893. And just like the Great Depression, if you can imagine what that was like, people were losing their jobs. The prices of silver, in this case, fell, like, bottomed out. And so a lot of places had to close, and the support systems had to close, and there was a lot of leaving and wandering around, and and it wasn't a happy time. But then fate smiled upon the Browns, maybe the magic pickaxe. Maybe. A floor came in, the little Johnny Mine, of which J.J. was the boss of, started to hemorrhage gold. Gold. So no longer silver, which is depreciated in value, mm-hmm. but gold, which is high. And so J.J. Um, was not only the superintendent, but with his majestic MacGyverism, figured out a way to get that gold out in the first place. And, oh, my, the mine owners were grateful. Oh, they were. They rewarded him and put him on the board and made him a part owner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He became a star. He turned Leadville around. He really did. He kind of saved the bacon of all the lower members of the totem pole, too. Because mm-hmm. yeah. now the chicks making pancakes had dudes to make pancakes for. That's you right. see how it builds up from there, you know? <gasps> This find made that Brown family incredibly wealthy. This was a Mega Millions strike right there. I have right here. Lottery winner? Maybe. But it was his hard work and mm-hmm. his education that led to yeah. this. It wasn't like dumb luck, really. Picking the right numbers? No. Yeah. Not at all. So one thing that I've noticed about when in our conversations and in our research about having lots of money is the main thing it does is it lets you be yourself. It lets you have time to explore the world and it lets you have time mm-hmm. to learn things. And one thing they chose to do almost immediately after the little Johnny Mine uh, hit it big was to go to a very exciting place called the Chicago World's Fair. Or the Columbian Exposition. Now, what was this thing? Well, it was the celebration of progress. Everything was new. Everything was magical there. It was also called the White City because this magic of electricity was everywhere, and there were 200,000 light bulbs. That's amazing. Like, yeah, that was more light than we'd ever seen in the nighttime, ever. Mr. Ferris's wheel made its appearance. Its debut was here. Now, I am freaking scared of riding them now. You are? So you've never rode that one in Chicago at the maybe pier? No. I can't imagine braving the first one. Seriously, it were 36 cars and they would hold 60 people. It reminds me of the Eye, maybe. The London Eye. Oh, yeah. Then Mm -hmm. your carnival ride with the two-seater. Now, this is a big thing. It's the first appearance of the squashed penny. You know that penny you buy at the zoo for 51 cents? At the time, it was two cents. Uh Talk about inflation. Yeah, One penny for the guy and one penny to smush. Yep. There was also a Braille printing press. Now, remember from Episode 7, Helen Keller is walking these same sidewalks right now. So Helen Keller and Margaret Brown are on this, in the same place at the same time. Woo-hoo. Chills. And actually, her story does overlap a couple others that we did. We'll get to that in a little yep. bit. Cracker Jack made its debut here. Lovely Cracker Jack. So Angel. delicious. And another staple of ball games and hipsters everywhere, PBR made its appearance <laughs> at the Chicago World's Fair. See, what would you do? Yes, you can thank the Chicago World's Fair for your PBR. So Margaret loved the international exhibits with all the sound and the smells and the novelty, and she really got all excited for travel. I think this is where her urge to travel was born, although I do think she missed little Egypt's hoochie-coochie dance. (laughs) I think she gave that a miss. Yeah. 
So when she was 27, her family made the big move to Denver. Oh, we moved on up now, girl. Indoor plumbing at last. The Yay. very first indoor plumbing. Electricity all over the place. This is... You know what's really sad? The what? House of Wood has the same wiring. I'm almost betting you as this house <laughs> that she moved into yeah, in 1895. Uh-huh. Yep. Mm-hmm. Probably the same plumbing. Can you see? Yes. Molly Brown standing right here in your foyer. Yeah. I can't. I mean, I called right. Molly Brown again. See? I can't even get it out of my head. And I'm going to crack up, and I swear to you this is true. Guess what they called the house? The House of Lions. So we recorded in the House of Woods, and she yep. lived in the House of Lions because yep. of these two big lions that flanked the entryway. Right. It was a beautiful house. We'll put pictures up on our website, and we'll link you to it. We'll talk about that in the media section. But it's a beautiful stone house, very large, on a street with other very large stone houses. The myth, of course, is that Molly Brown storms into Denver really crude and vulgar and demanding to be accepted by Denver society, which is not the case at all. The movie was right, and the legend is right, in that she did have this social nemesis, I guess you'd say. Mean girl. Yeah, that wouldn't let her into this little club. Yeah, the Sacred 36 was called, was that particular social group. 36! Yeah, Mrs. Crawford Hill was the mean girl's name. You know, Mrs. Astor up in NYC, our girl from way back in episode eight, could muster 400 people with the snap of her fingers, Mrs. Hill. But you just take your little 36, Mrs. Hill. Yes. And take your little, she actually uh, wrote a publication. I, I'm thinking it was just like a little magazine, but it was entitled, What Makes Social Leadership? And Mrs. Crawford Hill wrote, The world is full of dowdy, ill-bred women who fancy that if they had money enough, they could take society by storm. You know, sure, Margaret was new money, but so was almost everybody. And even the old money was not that much older. Like, forget. Like, ten years older. We're talking people. And so, you know, ten years separated the, the old and new money. And some people, admittedly, yes, were scandalized by Margaret's habit of wearing makeup Mm -hmm. in an era that clean scrubbed was respectable. I mean, that's, woo, that's saucy. Yeah, but see, that she's a free thinker. She's a, I, I keep thinking of her as very modern in her thinking. And this is what I like. This is what I'm going to present. You like me or you don't, but I'm going to charm you anyway. Yeah, and I think if she didn't respect somebody, she didn't really care what they thought anyway. But listen to this quote, though. She was exceptionally bright, a most interesting conversationalist, had a charming personality, and was a very attractive young woman. Her wealth never seemed to change her one iota. She was democratic. She was kind. So someone a lot of people want to get to know, basically. In fact, for over 20 years, the Browns, took up more newspaper society page inches than almost any other family in Denver. So don't say that they didn't get into society. Margaret and James Brown were Denver society. End of myth. Right there. And I think this is a good place for us to take a little break. And when we come back, we will see what life as a society matron in Denver was like. You've heard me say it before, and I'm going to say it again. Third Love does bras differently. Third Love believes that every woman deserves to feel comfortable and confident every day. 
Third Love can design their bras thanks to millions of women who've taken their Fit Finder quiz. Third Love has over 80 bra sizes, but they know that the only one that matters is yours. Every Third Love bra is backed by their perfect fit promise. You have 60 days to wash it, to wear it, and if you don't love it, returns are always free. But even more, Third Love's team of Fit Finder stylists are dedicated to helping you find your perfect fit. Fit stylists are available to help via chat or email. I keep telling you, Third Love bras are hands down the most comfortable bra I've ever owned. But I'm not alone. Some women in our private Facebook group had decided to try Third Love, and they were just as excited and just as happy with their bras as I have been all these years. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering our listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash chicks now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's Third Love, spell it out, T-H-I-R-D-L-O-V-E dot com slash chicks for 15% off today. back right now the browns are living large in denver so what was a proper edwardian lady to do with her time hmm there's not the business opportunities the men have but there's no more working in the drapery department no so over the next 10 years margaret brown embarked on what she later called the greatest joy of her life and i quote separating the rich from their money to help the poor because she never forgot Mm-mm. She she really, you know, people talk about people who don't change, that money doesn't change them. This was one of them. One of them. <laughs> so with other club ladies, she organized traveling libraries, art shows for schools. She organized community and neighborhood vegetable gardens to help the poor feed themselves. She set up public health clinics. She worked to make lives better in other ways, too. The YWCA and the Denver Working Girls Home. Not that kind. Not working girls. <laughs> girls that happen to work. She raised the money for playgrounds and summer schools for 500 children. She copied the World's Fair that she'd been to <laughs> and made this enormous fundraiser where there were different villages for different nationalities. I mean, living dioramas, full-size little cities. And if she wasn't in society, how could she possibly have gotten all these society people to sponsor these these tents with their heritage on display? She was teaching, like, Irish dancing at her time. I think it's amazing. And then this pivotal relationship she had with Judge Benjamin Lindsay, who was a pioneer in the concept of having a juvenile justice system. He was shocked one day. He heard he had two clients to defend, and so he opened the jail door to see who it was, and he saw these hardened criminals playing pool with what he assumed were their little sons beside them. And he's like, oh, what am I going to pull out? These guys are not going to look good in front of a jury. I'm not going to win. And to his astonishment, it was the little boys that were his clients. Right. And he's like, whoa, we're throwing little boys in with these hardened criminals that lawyers are afraid of. We're teaching them how to become hardened criminals by doing this. We're not reforming them at all. Yeah. And that was his platform, his his thing. Yeah, and and Margaret joined right on. She helped build, she was trying to get to the core of it, child care centers and public playgrounds to help keep little children off the street in the first place. Um, and then worked to make separate detention facilities for children in trouble. With the financial backing from all her fundraising and some political pressure, he, Judge Lindsay, almost single-handedly was responsible for creating America's juvenile justice system. So think about that. It was her money that pushed that button. Mm-hmm. 
far-reaching, and not just in her lifetime, but beyond. Not too bad. She did all that in 10 years. Yep. I mean, one of those things, it would take <laughs> people 10 years to accomplish anything, but she she had the personality. She had the, excuse me, she had the balls to ask for it. She had the brains to know how to get it done. She had the connections to know who to talk to, and she had the charm and the wit to get it, make it all work together. So life for her wasn't just philanthropic endeavors. They also built this estate out in the country, their country home. Uh, it wasn't too far outside of Denver, but it was almost like it was a million miles away. And it was a really big thing for the society people to get in their carriages and drive out to this place, which they called Evoca, based on a poem by Thomas Moore. It was this place where they could throw these weekend parties. They'd have these this barn for dances and these social events, which she would, in turn, use to make money for her philanthropic endeavors. But people would take carriage rides out in the fields and just and have picnics. It was it was a fun time out at the the Browns' other house. Also, Margaret was a big traveler. She went all over Europe, Asia, and Africa, making friends and, you know, just being her all the way. So there's that shred of truth. Again, like, people in other countries did take to her. Sometimes she took the kids. Whenever she could, she dragged old workaholic JJ along. Sometimes she just intrepidly went by herself. And she, in this period, created connections to Newport, Rhode Island, home of all of our Gilded Age heiresses. Um, she is friends with the countess that got her entree into New York society. So she's with the Astors. She's with the Vanderbilts. She's, you know what I mean? She's yeah, hooked up with yet another one of our podcasts. I know. That's kind of exciting. <laughs> yeah. We do that. While she's in Europe, they, they were really big on education for their children, and she wanted them to have European educations. Quite honestly, it sounds like these kids went to a different school every single year. They were educated in Europe at some schools and here at some East Coast schools, so that the children were often sent off to schools all over the world. Well, and speaking of children, when Margaret was 36, her brother Daniel lost his wife. <laughs> and he had four children. He just couldn't see how he could work and care for these children. And the Browns took in the three girls. Right. They had all these kids, especially for school mm-hmm. holidays, all these house full of lively young people. All the cousins got together. Yeah. It was a very close family. Yeah. She raised those nieces. Oh, definitely. There was no difference. That was another testament to her character. Well, she is such a larger-than-life figure, I guess, is what I'm saying. She's so busy doing all these fundraisers. But in between, she's carrying on this amazing social life. I just want to say, daughter Helen, who is now a teenager, is presented to society in Denver, in New York, in Newport, and in Paris. We are not playing here. Her sister, Margaret's sister, had become Baroness von Reitzenstein. Baroness. We are now titled. Titled. In this family. And Margaret Brown and her daughter attended the coronation of George V in Westminster Abbey. Okay, that is not for some little startup to do. No, you've got to know the right people and be really in to get that in. Well, her daughter Helen was presented at court. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Hello. I mean, seriously. So we are, you know, the movie just leaves out so much oh. of what needs to yeah, we'll talk so, about the movie later. <laughs> I know we're, like, we, we keep getting itching to talk about it, but we'll talk about it later. Okay. Unfortunately, at 43, the Denver paper outed the Browns, outed them, saying there had been a <gasps> divorce. 
In fact, it was not a divorce. Since they were both Catholic, uh, that is not possible. But it was a legal separation, and it had happened on the DL. It had happened in secret. Everyone was being big about it. But then when it got outed, it was very embarrassing. That was very not done in society. If you could keep it all, you know, behind the curtains, that's all well and good. But JJ and she had been growing apart for some time. He had been in poor health, and I think it was stress because he's a freaking workaholic. Yeah. And he really, 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 really thought it was improper his wife was out there like this. He hated her being in the papers. He hated her European friends. He hated all of Europe, frankly, because it reminded him that she was not at home being his wife like mm-hmm. he thought she should be. Mm-hmm. I don't mean to say he was stingy or mean. He gave money to. I mean, but he did it quietly. Right. And well, she had to do it big to gain the attention so that more people would donate. He was longing for earlier days. I think mm-hmm. in there when life was a little simpler and yeah, life had to be extremely complicated. Can you just imagine their calendar like yeah. on the wall? <laughs> Each day would have so much because this woman got stuff done. In his irritation with how everything was turning out, he maneuvered her separation deal to severely limit her funds to $700 a month. Now, I wouldn't be too sad for her because that's still over $23,000 a month in today's money. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, it's Quick a, matter, the math. It's a yeah. matter of scale. You yeah. know what I mean? But the kids took her side. The kids took her mm-hmm. side, which infuriated him all the more. Mm-hmm. But Margaret really just had to get out of Dodge. Everyone was all up in her business. Wouldn't leave her alone. We're camping outside her house. And she fled to Newport in the winter Newport. Right. So, so you know, there's large, nobody there. Yeah, largely low key, largely alone. <laughs> to a 43 room cottage. Yeah. Called Mon Etui. Which means. I, I looked it up, and the closest I can get it was holster or case or, um, like, suitcase. Well, I guess Sorry, it makes I'm... sense, like a protective covering. It's like her. A protective shell. I don't know. I'm taking major liberties with the French language here. (laughs) Well, I was looking on Google Earth to see if it's still there because I was interested. I'm very familiar. You know, I don't know if we've talked about how close I lived Uh to Newport before, but this is basically my old hood. And I knew about where it was. And so I looked it up on Google Earth. And I can't quite tell because there's a long building that has a lot of addresses associated with it. It's yellow and white. If anybody's in Newport... Go to the Dwyer Insurance Company, would you, and ask him <laughs> if his house used to be Margaret Brown's. Margaret Brown's cottage. So she decided to get further out of town. She would take up her friend J.J. Astor. Sounds familiar. And his J.J. Astor. And his new very young wife, Madeline, also. on their trip to Egypt. Her daughter, Helen, came along, too. There is a great picture of them on camels. Camels. I know. And... Apparently, she had seen a fortune teller while they were in Egypt who told her there would be some type of tragedy ahead in her future on water, I believe. Yeah. So. And she's like, yeah, okay, whatever. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, she just brushed it off. I mean. So they finally made it back to Paris at last, but there was an urgent telegram from her son. His little baby, his little baby son was gravely ill. He married a Kansas City girl, by the way. He did. Mm. She was a socialite here in Kansas City and moved out to, she moved out to Colorado. Intrepid women all over the place. I know. So Margaret, no slouch as a grandma, as well as being a really good mother, immediately booked a cabin out on the same boat her Astor friends were traveling on. But Helen went ahead and decided to stay in Paris like they had planned to. She had some engagements to keep and et cetera. And that's fine. She said, I'll just get this boat with the Astors and, and I'll meet you back in the Right. Morning. It was no big deal for her to be traveling alone. And the captain of the ship was someone that she knew. And that ship was called... 
The Titanic. <laughs> now, I doubt we need to go into this part too heavily. We kind of know what happened. It's a pretty famous story. Uh, you know, I'm sorry to spoil the end for you. The boat, the boat sinks. <laughs> My husband wouldn't see the movie because he's like, I know what happens. The boat sinks. Really? You don't want to witness Leonardo DiCaprio's fluffy hair I know. situation? That car scene? Steamy. Literally. I know. <laughs> so, okay, so here's Margaret's take. This is what happened from her perspective on the Titanic. Right. So she's in bed, and she's knocked out of bed by the impact, which is a little unusual for a first-class passenger, because a lot of them just referred to it as a slight rumbling. So she was literally knocked out of bed, and several times kind of stuck her head out in the hall in her nightgown, because the sounds weren't correct. And she had been experienced at sea travel before, yeah. so she knew what sounded right and what sounded wrong. And so finally she's like, well, nobody seems alarmed. I'm going to bed. So she went to bed, and she was woken up by a beating on her door and told, I'm sorry, man. And we have to go back up. We have to go on deck. It's time. Get your life belt. And so she layered up her clothing. She had like seven layers of stockings on. Yeah. And she put on anything that she could. She, she, she was very methodical about it. And she engaged her brain. She didn't freak out. Mm-hmm. She layered up as many layers as she could. She grabbed a little statue that she had gotten in Egypt, a little talisman statue, and stuck it in her pocket. Yeah, just in case. Yeah, Good luck, John. never knew. She put some money, but she did have to leave quite a bit behind. There were some things that were in the hold of the Titanic that she was bringing back for museums. So, And but, those are lost forever. Yeah. So up on the deck, uh, Officer Lightoller, it's loud. It's loud up there. Like, the the steam has all been released. It's just loud. Poor old Officer Lightoller is trying to get someone, anyone, to take him seriously. He's trying to load his lifeboat, and people are jacking around, and he is getting really irritated. <laughs> um, his lifeboat has 66 capacity, and it ended up with just 24 people on it. Even Margaret Brown was thinking she wasn't going to bother getting on. She was going to see what would happen. Someone actually threw her four feet down in the boat as it was going down. Someone threw her in. Well, you're going to go in. Yeah. It might have been Lytaller. I don't know. It may have been. You know, if you think about it, if you don't think there's anything serious going on, are you going to get in this rickety, tippy, psycho little boat and travel down 12 stories? Into the dark, cold, icy water. Yeah. So, you know, I don't blame pretty much anyone at this point when nobody really knew what was going on for being like, you know, I'll stay with the big one if that's okay. Yeah. But anyway, so she's gotten thrown into the boat. So ultimately, boat six had 21 women, a 12-year-old boy, a rude psycho crew member, and one male passenger. And they may have pulled someone out of the water. Mm-hmm. I was unclear on that. Yeah, later. I wasn't either. So, yeah, they rowed away from the ship, and the men were of no help at all. And the women, he, she got them to pull on the oars. The fear was that if they stayed too close to the boat, the suction would pull them under. Although, how did Leonardo DiCaprio survive? Go away from the bubbles. Oh, movie magic. Right. I see. Well, he didn't really survive. <gasps> Spoiler! Well, you know what I mean. Yeah, no, no. So anyway, the panic was that they had to row away from the ship ASAP, and so the crew member manned the tiller and steered instead of pulling on an oar, which irritated Margaret Brown so badly, and she finally snapped everyone out of it and is like, let's, come on, we can do this. This is, yeah. She she did take control in, in some regards, I mean, and she did share some of her clothing, her layers of clothing, to the women who were not as well-dressed. I know. Some were. of the ladies ran out with no stockings. They had bare legs, bare feet. 
and this is icy cold water. The air temperature is 28 degrees. The water temperature is 27 degrees because it's salt water, and mm-hmm. it got a little bit colder. And honestly, they had trouble getting the plug in the bottom, and so the bottom of the boat was about eight inches full of water. Yeah. How scary is that? Oh, I know. In the middle of the ocean, taking out water. Get the plug in, get the plug in. I can't get the plug in. Ugh. And the, one of the, the boy that got thrown into the boat had a broken arm, so he was... You know, he was only half of a help, and obviously all these people are upset. Their loved ones are still on the boat, you know. And the crew member actually refused to go back. Uh, after the boat had gone down, he wouldn't go back because he thought their boat would be swamped. Right. And so, you know what? I never really thought of this before, and this is the part where you think, oh, well, they're in the lifeboat. They're safe. All the people in the lifeboats, they're fine. But if you think about it, we know that other ships were coming. They didn't know that. No. They had no idea the Carpathia was on its way. No. no idea. Nobody would know that. How would they know that? But And they didn't know where the other boats were. There's no moonlight to help them. They don't know who's out there, how many lifeboats got away, and how many lifeboats even are there. There'd never been a lifeboat drill. No. And we keep thinking that they're safe, but they didn't have supplies. They didn't know. And then how freaking scary is that? Oh, having spent time even on, you know, coastal waters, imagining this type. You know, my parents, obviously, I grew up on a sailboat part of the year. So we had drills. But that's terrifying, even within two miles of shore. So imagine in the middle of the icy ocean, watching your ship go down, knowing that you're surrounded by dead people. And icebergs and And nothing. Scariness. And nobody's got a sat phone. Mm-mm. No. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, they didn't you know, have an emergency provi- provisions. It wasn't a, mm-hmm. it was a lifeboat and that was it. Mm-hmm. And so, um, honestly, the, it was so cold outside that, that everyone knew they had to kind of keep rowing or they were going to freeze. So they kept warm by rowing. And when the Carpathia finally came, I didn't realize how much trouble they had getting over there. No matter how hard they rowed, they couldn't get near the boat. It was mm-hmm. like, oh, stressful. And then just, just imagine a steamship getting back, getting into it. They had to lower a, like a swing ladder down the side and each person had to go up individually. Scary. That time from when your feet leave the boat. I mean, you've already gotten here. It's safety is just, a hundred feet up, but that distance. I know, the anxiety must have been great. Ultimately, of course, just over 700 people and only 13 lifeboats off that big ship. Mm-hmm. 13 lifeboats made it. and only They were only in the water a few hours in the darkness all alone, but that must have seemed like a million years. Oh. Really, I think that's the part everyone forgets is that terrifying middle of the night. So, even on the Carpathia, they've been saved. They're separated by class. Edwardians kill me. Yeah. So, <laughs> I know. Margaret's rummaged around and got things like socks, and she ripped blankets and sewed them smaller for the third-class children. She distributed any supplies she could find. Like, she shanghaied all the combs out of the out of the barbershop mm-hmm. and, like, stole all the toothpaste out of there and distributed the soap. And the ship's doctor was telling the first-class women, you know, we've got first-class cabins reserved for you. Why don't you just take it easy? And she was not going to let those people be. No. In fact, her languages came in very handy. These terrified third-class passengers who had lost their breadwinner. They were on their way to a new land, a new land which they were convinced was going to turn them around the second they got there. They had no way of making a living now. No. And they had lost everything. And so Molly Brown began fundraising right 
on, on the boat. I know. That, how awesome is that? She is, she is hitting up the people just like she did back in Denver, getting quite a bit of money, I think, within a very short period of time. Yeah, um, about $350,000 in today's money. By the time the Carpathia landed, she had pledges of that much money. Old girl and her old game, she knows what she is doing. She is skilled. From on a boat. I know. From people who had just been through this or on the Carpathia who had just seen it and had their luxurious cruise interrupted. Well, and not only that, they're still in the water with the icebergs. Yeah. So it could happen to them, too. It's, yeah, and she's getting them off for money. Wow. She's just awesome. And that's not the story that lasts. I know. You know, singing songs in the lifeboat was the story that lasts. What? Which they probably did. But not saloon girl songs. Yeah. <laughs> Belly up to the bar boys. Yeah, no. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> so when she got to New York and found that the baby grandson, remember him? The whole mm-hmm. reason we're not in Paris right now. Reading but, the headlines about the terrible disaster. Yeah. Yeah. So he's fine. He's recovered. I mean, it's taken a while. You can't just hop on a plane. So she went to her hotel with her brother Daniel, who had raced across the country by train to meet her. Um, she had continued her efforts. She assisted in documenting, this is important, where people had gone so that relief money could get to them. Right. She tried to make sure everybody had been met by somebody, at least a relief agency. She's very practical, like Clara Barton practical. Yes. It's like, you know. That's such a good comparison. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know what? We can pray all we want for them, Mm -hmm. but what they need is bread and they need shoes. So Mm -hmm. if we can handle the bread and shoes... <laughs> yeah, we'll get her. We'll handle the rest. Yeah, of it. we'll. we'll t- yeah, and she's keeping track of. I mean, yeah, she's not just a big promiser. Like, yeah, like a lot of posers could be. She's That's correct. She's a doer. She was the spokesperson, actually, for the rest of her life for the survivors' committee mm-hmm. of the Titanic mm-hmm. tragedy. Yeah, she presented the captain, Captain Rostron of the Carpathia, uh, not only with a, a big loving cup, which was a big trophy, a uh, very famous picture of her that went all over the world. By mm-hmm. the way. Um, not including only that, to our website. Yeah, including to our website. <laughs> but she gave him her good luck charm, her Egyptian good luck charm. She mm-hmm. brought all the way in her pocket just in case she gave it to him. And um, she was very modest about her own role. She said, I simply did my duty as I saw it. I'm sure there's nothing I did that anyone else would not have done. Who else but was so qualified for that? Really? Nobody. Because if they would have done it, they would have done it. Yeah. I mean, these are the the people she's on the boat with weren't all second or third class passengers. They were, her people were on that boat and they weren't doing it to the extent that she was. Nobody, nobody stepped up. Well, now you know what? I lie. People stepped up as her assistants. Once she did it, they did help her. Yeah. I will say. Yes. I'm not saying they all jacked around. No, and you can only have one leader. Yeah. If you have more than that, it just gets complicated. So, But she just modestly said, I found a lot of opportunities to be useful, and I was grateful to be able to do things. She rocks the party. I love her. I know. I do, too. Um, But hardly anyone had known in Denver that she was on the Titanic at all. Nobody knew to worry, except her children, who she had told Mm -hmm. that she was coming. Nobody knew to worry. Uh, And so the shock in Denver was great when all these... Photos started coming out. Mrs. Brown, blah, blah, blah. And you know what J.J. Brown said about her? I can't believe this. What? She's too mean to sink. That's right. That bitter man, unlike the movie, there's no reconciliation coming, my friends. No, no, no. He's not there behind the door with arms wide open for her. Not at all. No. But guess who gave a dinner in her honor upon her return to Denver? 
Hmm, mean girl turned nice girl, perhaps? Mm-hmm. Mrs. Crawford Hill? But is she one of those people that only likes you when you're famous? Do you think that was a genuine welcome home, or was like a, hmm, now that you're famous, you can be my friend. You can be in the 37. But uh, Margaret so wanted to testify before Congress. She so did. She was fired up. That she couldn't believe how badly this had all mm-hmm. gone, and she was just hopping mad. She she wanted to testify, but unfortunately, of the people that testified, only six were women. Only two showed up in person at all. She never did get called before Congress, which is strange since she was so famous by then. You would think they would think of calling her, but she got her voice heard anyway. She wrote this huge three part story that was serialized in newspapers all around the world, um, using the media very much like our friend Nellie Bly did, you know, just get get the story out in as many papers as possible. So it gripped the nation. And why did it sell papers? Oh, certainly. So now is the time to take, I think, another little break. And when we come back, we will discover how Margaret Brown used her fame. Skillshare is an online learning community with thousands of inspiring classes so you can get lost in creativity and develop new passions like art, photography, productivity, writing, or graphic design. Skillshare offers creative classes designed for real life and all the circumstances that come with it. Especially now, spontaneous acts of creativity might just help you break up the routine of another day spent indoors. You know what I'm finding comforting right now? Baking. It's an anxiety reducer for me, but at the beginning, yeast dough was weirdly intimidating. Even after watching all those episodes of British Bake Off. Let's be honest, it's probably because of all those episodes of British Bake Off. So I recommend a class called Easy and Versatile Baking, the one yeast dough you need to know. The coach tells you not only how to make the dough, but why things work the way they do, which, of course, pleases the analytical side of my brain. I have a 25-pound bag of flour calling my name. It's right behind me. And baking is such a fundamentally satisfying thing to do. I highly recommend it. Creativity and self-care disguised as pepperoni bread. Yes, ma'am. Explore your creativity and get two free months of premium membership at Skillshare.com slash chicks. That's two whole months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free. Get started and join today by heading to Skillshare.com slash chicks. That's two free months of unlimited access to thousands of classes at Skillshare.com slash chicks. We're back. Margaret Brown is famu. Margaret Brown decided to harness her fame and make a run for the state senate. But of course, where else are you going to throw yourself? I mean, seriously, let's just objectively look at this. She is the kind of person to be a very effective politician. Her quote was, why should a woman be mildewed at 40? That's the best time to start a real career. She was Such a forward-thinking person. It is the best time to start a career. And I'm going to tell you this. If you are on the cusp of 40 and you are dreading it, I want you to send me an email. Because I have nothing but fabulous things to say about making that leap and crossing the bridge to 40. It was awesome. That's good. I digress. (laughs) But, you know, that's what we do. Well, Newport loved Margaret Brown, who was increasingly more forthright than ever before, and she genuinely did not care if people disapproved of her. 
Yeah. Well, she did. She was that way before. Yeah. But now, now it's all on a there. bigger stage. She had made friends with another powerful Newport matron who also didn't care what people thought of her, Alva Vanderbilt. Now, if you haven't yet, you should listen to episode nine of our podcast, in which Alva Vanderbilt plays a big part, or you should read the chapter in my favorite book, To Marry an English Lord, called The Pushiest Mama. <laughs> yes, you should. There you go. And Alva Vanderbilt backed Margaret's drive to run for the Senate. She wanted to take the place of the first woman senator, Helen Robinson. Margaret was endorsed by the National Women's Suffrage Association of New York. Okay. She's got some names pushing her behind her. Now, ironically, we didn't mention this before, Margaret's home state of Colorado in 1893, was the very first state to grant women the right to vote. Now, not the first place, because Wyoming did it first, but Wyoming was only a territory and not a state. So Colorado mm-hmm. got in there with the official stamp of, you know. Mm-hmm. So Margaret's from the forward-thinking women's suffrage state anyway. Right. So states trickled in, but the whole country didn't go down the women's suffrage road until 1920. Right. She said, our men out in Colorado do not question our right to vote. They realize our right to have a speaking part in the affairs of the country in which we, as well as they, must live. In other words, our men believe in us. Wow. So she was giving props to the men in Colorado, by the way, you know, and she was gearing up to fight. And then people started to go, wait, why are we going to fight against the only other woman? Can we just not pick someone else yeah. to fight against? So, oh, we should probably just replace the man. Oh, that's a good idea. So when they were gearing up for that strategy change, a couple things happened. War broke out. That's a big one. That's a huge one. World War One broke out, and she really postponed her bid, thinking, you know, actually, the people that are experienced should probably stay in charge right now. Right. Now, yeah. also, her sister is a German baroness, so mm-hmm. that wouldn't look good in the election campaign either, since the Germans were the bad guys in this deal. Margaret did the next best thing, as far as she could see. She donated her 43-room cottage to the Red Cross to use as a hospital. Where did we see that? Oh, yes, Downton Abbey. Those copiers. I know. Across the <laughs> pond, copying. So she grabbed some nurses, and she grabbed some equipment, and she headed off to France to establish a relief hospital. Because that's what you do. There's a war breaking out. You go towards it and try to help people there. Just like Clara Barton. <laughs> she just kills me. Every, she is so feisty. She just doesn't sit around and think about stuff. She's a woman of action, right? isn't she? Yes. So while she was there, Margaret worked with J.P. Morgan's daughter, Anne. So here's another extremely wealthy woman who ditched her picture hats, and she ditched her fabulous lifestyle, and she created the Committee for the Assistance of Devastated France. Um, she was a director of this company for Anne Morgan. And here's what their their purpose was to kind of help rebuild behind the lines. France was wrecked. Mm-hmm. Just wrecked. Yeah. And they were going to try to build up the civilian populace again. There's no point having won this war if we can't help the people that are so down now. So what they would do is build houses, import seed, teach people to farm, import livestock, um, obtain and distribute even household implements like axes. She rebuilt schools. They rebuilt libraries, medical facilities. You know what the rules were to go over and work? You had to speak French. You had to pay $1,500 to support yourself while you were over there. Right. You had to go buy your uniform at B. Altman. Of course you did. <laughs> yes. Like, pick up your uniform on the way over, That's would right. you? Stop. 
Um, and you had to be gone for six months. And, you know, female doctors, which not so accepted in this country, totally traveled over there to help with this effort, too. Because they could perform their services, what they were trained to do. Uh, women yeah. rallied to yeah. help people. I often think, I wonder what this world would be like if it was all women in charge. Because, you know, <laughs> what are they thinking of doing? They're thinking of going and helping in a real practical way. Yeah. A war-torn country. This isn't politics. This is, I'm going to help out the people that need help, and we'll talk about politics later. I just love it. I couldn't agree with you more. I keep thinking we have a mutual friend, Lindsay, who just says, moms get shit done, and these women are getting shit done. That's true. Hooray, Lindsay. I know. Shout out to Lindsay. (laughs) Then, when Margaret Brown was 55, her husband, I can't say ex-husband, they weren't divorced, but her long estranged husband, J.J. Brown, died rather suddenly. And as much venom as he spewed on her, here's what she had to say about him. Shall we investigate our character? Let me say here, I've been all over the world. I've known more or less intimately the greatest people in the world, from the kings down or up, as one cares to view them, and I've never met a finer, bigger, more worthwhile man than J.J. Brown. In spite of certain qualities of our natures, which made companionship impossible, I salute his memory and claim him to have been without a peer. Nice! So who's the bigger person, is what uh, I'm going to say. Well, yeah. I mean, that's a f- the father of her children, and she's totally honoring him. I think that's great. If he had been so smart as to honor the remaining family, here's another smart man, just like we had talked about in Nellie Bly. This is like, we just keep referring to other podcasts, but here's another smart man that dies without a will. I know, it's a mess. So, I mean, when that happens, it's got to go to court, and this is pitting Margaret against her children. Well, complications and suspicions. What the heck? People are insane. Yeah, well, it's money involved. I hate that. I I seriously hate that. It's happened not in my side of the family. It's happened in real life. I can't be more specific, but I just, it's very irritating. I have seen it as well, yes. It took a long time, but eventually they made up. But this caused some bad blood for years. Yeah, it did. And for a family that had been very close up until this point, yeah. So I'm very glad they made up at last. At 58, Margaret worked to create the Titanic Monument in Washington, D.C. It's a man standing in the I'm King of the World pose. Yeah, he totally is. Although you might say you could say the Jesus pose, too. Because, I mean, he's standing with his arms outstretched. (laughs) Maybe you wouldn't, but I would. The statue reads... To the brave men who perished in the wreck of the Titanic, April 15th, 1912, they gave their lives that women and children might be saved. I might add here, she completely disapproved of that, by the way. She thought, if we're going to demand equality, we oughtn't to have been saved first. And what's the point of saving the women and children if you're going to leave the breadwinners behind Mm -hmm. and create so much more torment for those who have lived? Right. So she never did. Quite honestly, they weren't all men that died. Oh, that's true. That's the part that stands out. It's the first line. But she worked to have it erected, so that's important. So that same year, that same year, I think she's like Angela Lansbury, where chaos follows her around. (laughs) She survived a devastating hotel fire in Palm Beach, Florida, kept her head again, and led a group of shocked and frightened guests calmly down a fire escape and (laughs) saved their lives. Of course she did. Yeah, why would, yeah, yeah. That's what she does. Someone's like, okay, fire, check, water, check. Like, and again, what are calamities? This is the stuff movies are made out of, all this stuff. And they left it out. Totally. Aye. 
At 60, she drove to Washington, D.C. with an exiled Russian princess to demand that Calvin Coolidge, the President of the United States, enact the Equal Rights Amendment, which he declined to do. But still, <laughs> you're going to put a princess in your vehicle and storm the White House. Also at 60, her lifelong dream of being on the stage finally came true. She did. She went to study acting. And she performed like an homage to Sarah Bernhardt who she loved and idolized. Sarah Bernhardt was famous at an advanced stage for playing even young boy parts on stage. And so Mm -hmm. the homage was almost like a direct, here's a woman at 60 performing Sarah Bernhardt playing these parts. (laughs) Very understandable to the audiences that Mm -hmm. saw it and why did it claim? She did a great job. She did. The French government gave her an award called the French Legion of Honor. Now, admittedly, a lot of people got this award. Yeah, but a lot of big name people got this award. Do you have the list? Say about the key names, some big, some biggies. Sarah Bernhardt, we mentioned. Uh, Jane Goodall has received that in recent mm-hmm. times. Julia Child, J.K. Rowling, and Josephine Baker. Awesome. Yeah, so we're in good company. It's basically um, for cultural contributions. Yes, and before you write to us and ask us to put um, those women who have passed on our list, they're all on the list already. They are all on the list. They are all on the list. So she um, received that for her war work and for... They listed that long list of philanthropic activities that we have just touched on here mm-hmm. in this podcast. Um, she was recommended by Anne Morgan, the woman that she worked with in France, and by good old Captain Rostron of the Carpathia. So those were her two sponsors. And then, suddenly, with no wind-up, no warning, and in her sleep, Margaret Brown died. At the age of 65, at the Barbizon Hotel in New York City on October 26, 1932. She might have died the way she wanted to. I'm going to quote from a book by Kristen Iverson. She said, I'm a daughter of adventure. That means I never experience a dull moment and must be prepared for any eventuality. I never know when I might go up in an airplane and come down with a crash or go motoring and climb a pole or go off for a walk in the twilight and return all messed up in an ambulance. That's my arc, as the astrologers would say. It's a good one, too, for a person who'd rather make a snap out than a fade out of life. Nice. She knew exactly, you know, she was like, why fade away? Go out with the thing, snap out, love that. The myths and stories got out of hand almost immediately. You've seen the results, or maybe you haven't. The unsinkable Molly Brown, which I like to call the... Unwatchable Molly Brown. It's a 1964 movie with Debbie Reynolds in the lead role. And while she did earn an Academy Award for this performance... Which astonishes me. It makes me want to lay on the floor and fan myself. It might be one of those, like, for her body of work awards. You know, they sometimes, like, you know... I don't, I don't know. know. And you know, I don't have a problem with the stage play, which is bizarre. But this one, it was just contract. I don't know. I don't yeah, know. I, I hadn't, I thought I had seen it. I, but we both got it and watched it separately. Oh, no, no, no. And then I think we were like live tweeting, like, pour yourself a drink, girl. You're gonna need it. It was, yeah, this movie was absolutely horrendous. It, it not only was just chock full of inaccuracies, but just from the first scene, it's a, a baby floating down a river in a cradle, and the baby falls out of the cradle, and, I mean, face first into the water and swims to shore. But as a mother, you're like, oh, my gosh, the baby in the water. You're freaking out. And it just went actually downhill, downhill from, there. from there. Yep, yep, it sure did. But um 
Harvey Presnell, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce his name, played JJ in the movie and he was kind of creepy. Although later in life, um, he was not. He, he was in the movie Fargo, who was the Oldsmobile dealer in the movie Fargo. And he wasn't creepy as an, as a older actor, but there was something just about him that was just a little stalkery. A little bit. And, they went with the uh, Seamus story. You know, Molly wants to find have a house with a room for her daddy, Seamus, so he can drink his jug of whiskey in luxury. Um, was played by Ed Begley, who was the father of Ed Begley Jr. We've all probably seen the grand James Cameron movie Titanic. And I have to tell you, physical casting. Oh, Spectacular. Yes. Oh, yes. And we maybe we should have said that up front. Get this image in your head of Kathy Bates. In Titanic. Yeah, you're toward the end when she's an, a mature lady. Kathy right. Bates is a dead ringer, my yeah. friends. Yeah, and she had, apparently had auburn hair, although you were telling me a story about <laughs> Once it was discovered that she was fine of the Titanic, she sent a telegram to her daughter, Helen, saying, I'm fine, I've been pickled in brine, and I'm all dried off now, don't worry about me, I'm fine. And then she goes, hey, go to that place and ask the man about that henna. For my hair. Just ask the guy. He'll know. He'll know what I mean. Just tell him it's me. So there might have been a little touch-up later. Enhancement. Yeah, she's all, yeah, Titanic. This is, uh, can you get me the stuff? Yeah. So, yes. So, physically like her. Probably, diction-wise, similar. You know, she was, she probably had a little bit of a twang to her voice. But the words that she used... Probably not. Well, and there is a strange boomerang in that movie. There is a dinner scene where... The Molly Brown character, shall we say, is entertaining some of the reluctant upper class at the captain's table with a story about how J.J. came home drunk as a pig celebrating and lit the money on fire. Thus, art is only imitating art. Art. And not reality at no, all. No, not at all. <laughs> Which is funny. So next time you watch Titanic. Yeah, and that. when the ship goes down, she says, there's something you don't see every day. Probably not the words that were coming out of her no. mouth at the time. Although my favorite line in that movie is said to her when she says, we've got to go back. And the sailor says, shut your pie hole. <laughs> that has got to be my all-time favorite. I, that's really sad, isn't it? That yeah. whole movie and all the research and my favorite line is shut your pie hole. <laughs> Poor yeah. Kathy Bates. Poor Kathy. She didn't deserve that abuse. No. Also, A Night to Remember uh, is another movie. I have not seen it. It is from, I believe, the 50s, when shown to a survivor of Titanic who didn't quite understand the premise of cinema. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the the survivor began to cry and said if they were close enough to take pictures of it, why didn't they come help us? Oh. I know. It's very upsetting. But it tells you the authenticity of it. Wow. Yeah. So that was a little bit sad. So the, a night to remember... At least according to that survivor, the story itself of the sinking might have been close enough to create that emotional drama. Sure, sure. Um, As usual, you know we like to follow dead women on Twitter. You can follow Molly Brown. It's actually tweets from the Molly Brown House Museum in Denver. But you can follow her on Twitter, and you get some historical ones, but you get a lot of information about the museum. And we'll, we'll link you up with the museum in Denver. It's the home that the Browns had on Pennsylvania Street. The house itself has quite a history. And after the Browns left, it became a boarding house. It became a gentleman's boarding house. As the, you know, as the neighborhood was turning, it became a home for wayward girls, and it was going to be torn down and Um, was purchased by a historical organization that restored it to how it would have looked um, when the Browns lived in it, and it's open 
now as a museum. So that's if you're in Denver, that's a kind of a cool place to go visit. And if you happen to be in Hannibal, and you're probably there, honestly, for the Mark Twain situation, but if you're there for any Mark Twain events, you should look up Molly Brown's house there. It's called Molly Brown's Childhood Home, I believe, but it is still preserved. They they went in and redid it. It's a lot smaller than the other house, of course. <laughs> yeah. It's a little tiny white four-room house, but it is there, too. And seriously, if you're there for the Mark Twain tour, yeah, you should you see know, it. experience everything Hannibal has to offer. It's on Butler Street. Mm-hmm. I assume any citizen of Hannibal can tell you where that is. That's right. Let me tell you, a lot of this podcast um, is based on a book by Kristen Iverson called Molly Brown Unraveling the Myth. And the reason this is so spectacular is right after Margaret Brown died, all the stories were getting so out of hand that the family honestly in dismay clammed up and wouldn't talk to anybody. Mm-hmm. A lot of uh, the real stories, the real letters, what was going on, they just wouldn't tell anyone because they were so sick of what had happened to their mother's reputation. Mm -hmm. And finally, this writer has gotten with the grandchildren and the other descendants and collected all this together. So I highly recommend it. Our library system, given that this is the 100th anniversary of the Titanic, has gotten in a lot of copies of Titanic-related material. Mm -hmm. And yours probably does, too. So you might hit the library for this one. Yeah, and then there are there's an infinite number of children's books. But the best one that I found, the one that I'm sharing with my little son, is called Molly Brown Sharing Her Good Fortune. And it's in, curiously enough, the Community Builders series. So they know, they know it's not all about the Titanic. They know it's all about philanthropy and what she did with her money. So this is slanted the correct way, I'm telling you. And it's got great, great pictures. Even the cover picture is a a photograph that you don't see in a lot of books. Yeah, it's very good. And then at the end, it will give you what can you do for your community? How can you use this person's example to better where you live? And that kind of thing. It's good if you're using this in schools. Yeah, homeschooling. Yeah, that's a great one. A couple of stranger links, perhaps, TheMorgan.org is a multimedia site about the rebuilding of France. So it basically covers, this is very famous, Anne Morgan's mm-hmm. um, committee right. to help France. Um, and so you can find that online, too, and we're going to link to that. That is a spectacular thing I had no idea about. Right. Until starting. Here's another spectacular this. thing that we had no idea about is Titanic Belfast, which is a... From what the website looks like, it's going to be some kind of amusement park slash museum. Rides are mentioned. It opens this summer. I've not seen it yet. Uh, as we're not in Ireland. As we're not in Ireland, it's not open. Yeah. Uh, it seems alarming Peculiar. to me, but I'll give it the benefit of the doubt. Uh, once it's open, perhaps we can get some first person. Yeah, but we'll we'll link you up to what we found and TitanicBelfast.com. We'll keep our eye on that one. So that is the life of Margaret Tobin Brown, the unsinkable Molly Brown, Molly Brown, etc. <laughs> However you know her name by, the, now you know her story. And it's so strange that so much of this exciting story has been obscured. And I'll just leave you with this. It took a powerful myth to obscure the significance of Margaret Tobin Brown's own life. A reporter for the Denver Post wrote Margaret a fitting eulogy. Not being a man, she determined to be a successful woman, to see this world, to meet its best, and be one of them. She had a definite, fearless personality. She knew what she wanted, she went after it, and seldom failed her goal. Her greatest quality was her courage to always be herself. 
it's Beckett. This minicast is going to be quite different from any other minicast. Susan and I got to take a field trip together. We went to the Titanic exhibition for the 100th anniversary of the sinking down at our Union Station in Kansas City. Now, the sound quality is quite different than usual. We um, went down there with a lot of excited people, so you will constantly hear background conversation through the whole entire thing. And we're in a marble hall. So the footsteps are loud, the echoes are loud. Um, so, there it is. I hope you enjoy it. We enjoyed the exhibition greatly, and on with the show. So we're here at the Titanic exhibit. I know, it's very exciting. exciting. Our first field trip. Yeah. At least together. I know. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's pretty cool. I don't know if I'm going to cry. I'm going to cry. You think? I know it. Although I didn't pack any tissues. But I also didn't put earrings on, so I know. I was in such a hurry. But, um, yeah, this is the Titanic Artifact Exhibit. It's at Union Station in Kansas City, and we are privileged to have it here for the 100th anniversary. At first, we got distracted by the dresses. Don't you have those boots? <laughs> They're a little bit narrow. I love that hat. I know. That's a dot and abby hat, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, look at everybody's waist. Wow. Hey, dang. Don't look at mine. I mean, is it malnutrition or is it cranky? Hey, can you see Cora? Cora? Yeah, yeah. That's mm-hmm. a Cora dress. A wedding dress almost. Are, how can a contemporary you wedding dress. This? Tiny. Looks too tiny to be an adult person. I mean, it's the right height, like for me, but okay. I mean, that's got to be a 17 inch waist right there. Yeah, my thigh's bigger than that waist. And then there was a wall of statistics, another big passion of ours, and so we stopped to take a look. Cost of living. Cost of living, butter, 37 cents a pound, coffee, 28 cents a pound. You can stay at the Hotel Savoy for $1 a night if you want to be cheap, or $3 if you want a suite. And 700 bucks for a new car. A Ford Model T, any color, as long as it's black. And And a starter home. Starter home. Max got it, 6,000. Wow. I need to get into a TARDIS. And go back. Look at this. 18% of the children in our city were children of foreign-born parents in 1912. And there was 55,000 telephones. <laughs> that seems very high. high. That would be. Yeah. That does seem high. Oh, and here is a quote on the wall from a passenger from Kansas City. We were emigrants. My parents had a public house in London. We were going to Kansas. My father was going to buy a tobacconist shop. Melvina Dean, third-class passenger, was. Yeah. So, obviously, she was saved as a child. So, there's one Kansas City. And then we rounded the corner and saw our first artifact, and it started to get real. Crow's nest bell. This bell hung over the Titanic's crow's nest on the foremast. This was the bell that the ring relates. Man, it's weird to see it. Iceberg, right ahead. Oh, no. Look at the size of those propellers. Yeah, there's a picture of the of the yeah. workers. Yeah, all with the their flat caps standing into the propellers, and each guy is like the distance of just the center thing. Yeah. 
And you know we have to relate things to real life. You know what? Lego should come out with a Titanic model. I was just going to say, this looks like a Lego. It does. It looks like a... How big would you say that is? I would say it is 11 feet long. Oh, you are better at this It's about the same size as my dining table. Oh. <laughs> yeah, you have a big dining table. Which seats 12. I know. So, there's this, this, uh, this, this model of the Titanic, and it looks like a Lego. It looks like it's made out of Legos. What's this? Oh, rivets. This is riveting. <laughs> You are a dork. <laughs> they look, they look like mushrooms. She just said it was riveting. Let's go. The interior was not finished when it got launched May 31st, 1911. Because wow. they had carpeted it, put the furniture in. There's a gasp of wonder as yeah. the onlookers. Holy crap, it floats. I know. You know, I think that about modern cruise Have you seen that one that has the, like, rock climbing wall I know, I know. in the center. I'm like, okay, that looks like 10 feet of it are sticking in the water. Yeah. yeah. How do those float? I'm, I'm like baffled that. by the whole thing. Right. Tell me what that bag looks like. What that bag looks like? Mm-hmm. A bowling bag? Does it? What does it look like? Doesn't it look like Nellie Bly's bag? Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> well, a postcard of Bora Bora was found. Wow. Yeah, these postcards are surviving. It is seriously. Oh. oh, and you know what? I don't know where I got this, but there's a tag here that says, White Sirline, second class, not wanted on voyage. And I do that. My husband gets crazy. Because that way the not wanted on voyage goes uh-huh. in the trunk or in the back. Right. And the wanted yeah. on voyage, yeah. like, yeah. you know, your yeah. snacks. Yeah, where your bugles are. Wow, this paper money is huge. It's See, huge. that's why it looks like that. You know when people hand people folded bills, it looks like pieces of paper? Mm-hmm. Well, this would be why. These things are as big as pieces like of, paper. Piece of paper. They look like the size of a check. Even bigger than a you check. You remember what checks are, right? Uh, <laughs> I wrote one this morning for lunch money. Oh, you did? Okay, there you go. You got one. <laughs> for the child. That's funny. It was a gymnasium. And you know who worked out in that gymnasium? Leonardo DiCaprio? <laughs> And then let him in. <laughs> Margaret. Oh, look. Is oh, this Margaret Brown? Margaret Brown, first class. Women's suffragist and human rights organizer. I love that that's how they remember her. Then there was a shiny thing. Sorry. Silk necklace. Silk. Survive in the bottom of the ocean. Silk is tough, man. Ooh, that beaded necklace would look lovely with the outfit I'm wearing today. There were display cases full of household objects and recreations of a first-class cabin and a third-class cabin. Oh, my goodness, it's a chamber pot. Only first-class cabins were fitted with running water. Oh, how funny. The sink, you just shoved it into the wall, and then some guy came along behind the wall where you didn't have to see it and emptied it out. That job would stink. Oh, my gosh. Here's a recreation of a first-class stateroom. Quite lovely, quite plush. And that bed uh, looks really comfortable. Lots of flat wallpaper. These beds were really small. It's like a full, maybe a full. And I know yeah. two full-grown people were supposed to sleep in it, so good luck to them. But it was very plush. And I'm sure there was a second room, you know, with the running water, since right. this was, I don't see the sink anywhere. Well, there probably a closet area of some sort. I mean, unless they had uh, a wardrobe. 
Oh, yeah. I guess we're on the fourth wall. There could be a wardrobe right oh, yeah. we are. That's right. I'm the wardrobe. <laughs> That's cool. Okay, the promenade deck does not look fancy. It, it looks like an industrial back of a movie theater. You know, there's, you, no, there's no chairs on it. Maybe that's what's missing. But it's got a ceiling of metal rivets. It seriously looks and like pipes. It, it looks like a basement. Yeah. <laughs> if you have to take the emergency exit out of the movie theater, this oh, is what it looks that's like. That's where you go through. The back hall. But there's pretty arched windows. Ports. I'm sorry. It's a ship. They're ports. And it's funny that um, those, you can see in all the pictures now that I know to look for it, that they installed handrails all randomly all over the ship because of rough water. You could grab a hold of them. That's great. Yeah, this is interesting. The cost of a first-class cabin. The two most luxurious suites on the deck are staggering at $4,500 in 1912 money. So that's $103,000. Yikes. It was additional cost to use the amenities, the jam, the turkey scan. Wow. <gasps> Cherry toothpaste. Cherry toothpaste. John Gosling Co. LTD toothpaste jars featuring the profile of a young Queen Victoria. Because she has its marvelous teeth. Oh, it may have been a complimentary toiletry item. You know, there's a couple of things that's, that's like uh, um, the passengers of Titanic will be treated to our famous blah, blah, blah soap. Just like today. Mm-hmm. Found it, the finest hotels. Yeah, yeah they advertise that way. Oh, yeah. Swag, yeah. Okay. Gillette razor blade wrapper. By the time the Titanic sailed, Gillette safety razor was supplanting the straight razor as the instrument of choice. Do you know where Gillette Castle is? I do not. Connecticut. Really? Yes, it's beautiful. We were geeking out on the dinnerware. So the second class passengers got lovely china, but not quite as fancy. And the third class passengers got um, dinerware, which is probably more durable. I know. It looks in pretty good submission. Shocking how these delicate little things went through this whole trauma, and here they are. Just proves that when I get angry at things and tell them I'm going to throw them away, they've got the last laugh on me. Yeah. I'm going to survive. Okay, seriously, I have a teapot that looks almost exactly like this. It's brown. Most of the china on Titanic bore the White Star Line's mark to discourage theft. They did not trouble to mark the brownware service because it was for the officer's mess and the valet and maids. And this particular one was probably brought on board by a passenger. Oh, because it has floral. Because it's got a floral painting. Hmm. In second and third class, you've got bigger mugs than you got in the first class. Well, think about that now. If you go to a diner, you get a big old honking cup. Yeah. I mean, seriously, the size of that mug. That's a good size mug. Tea was served at every meal. I don't know about coffee, though. I know tea was served downstairs in third class, but I think coffee was only upstairs. It was cold. Whatever hot beverage you could get. Yeah. Titanic's second-class cabins were comparable to first-class cabins on many other ocean liners. <gasps> How funny. At the first lunch, second-class passengers thought they'd accidentally been seated in first class. <laughs> so basically, the Titanic upped it. It's like first class was so luxurious, you could not freaking believe it because second class... Which right. one everybody else was used to on first class. That's interesting. That is. Wow. And now we get to significantly less luxurious surroundings with bunk beds. Cost $900, which is still a lot. $900 yeah. today. Right. It's 40 Wow. But still. <laughs> Unlike other liners which used straw, Titanic's bunks had real mattresses. 
two bathtubs for 700 third-class passengers. The ship also featured open-air deck space on the poop deck. Giggle, giggle. <laughs> we saw some engineering miracles and the horrible, hot, fire-filled coal surfer holes. Ice morning, 1.45 p.m. from America. Watertight doors. Wow, again, this is just like in the movie. Most important doors could be closed automatically at the flip of the switch. Imagine this coming down and you being on the wrong side of it, though. Think about how terrifying that would be. Yeah. This thing has gears that have got to be seven inches across, just the middle gear. And the teeth are like pounds of butter. I'm kind of like, I'm so nervous right now walking under this watertight door. I'm going to do it quickly. Um, okay, so at 10.55 p.m. from the Californian, Another they basically ice. said, we are stopped. We are surrounded by ice. Now, if that's not a red flag, I don't Sounds know. like a red flag. Sounds like a red flag. But, you know, they thought they knew what they were doing. There was a special team of experts on board. The group of nine complete any work left unfinished when the ship set sail. Any problems, they were the problem solver. Oh, they all died. Because they all stayed on their post and tried to fix the problem till the very last minute. Until all hope was gone, and, you know, that it was too late. Including Thomas Andrews, the director. Wow. <laughs> the more unpleasant work environment I cannot imagine. No, these stokers. Right no, here. and then just feet of, I mean, feet, 100 feet above that, with that opulence. Yeah. I imagine it's after, I mean, it's obtrusive now, but I imagine after you hear it a long time, it's probably just kind of soothing. It's like white. Like, yeah. That's I heard that. Whoa. Okay, yeah. so I was talking earlier about how scary it would be if you were on the wrong side of the door. Mm-hmm. One of the stokers heard the crash, and um, it sounded like thunder coming toward him, and water came in, and he grabbed his friend, and they jumped through the doorway into the next section, and the watertight door shut right behind them. For just a moment, we thought we were in Hogwarts. Cargo. <laughs> 76 cases of dragon's blood. That's lovely. It's, <laughs> it's a red resin taken mainly from the fruit of palm trees made up to Malaysia and Indonesia. <laughs> um, over and over and over on these signs, I am seeing that people are trying, trying, trying to do their work until the last minute. Even these postal workers are trying to save the mail. But, you know, that goes to show, like, number one, they had a sense of duty and work ethic. And number two, they had no freaking idea how bad it was. Yeah. Yeah, that's a key sentence right there. Some of the most important ice warnings simply did not reach the bridge. We've now reached the point in the museum that's set up to be the night the ship hit the iceberg. I love that quote. If the situation becomes at all doubtful, you must let me know at once. That was the captain. <laughs> okay. Emergency room telegraph. Holy cow. How did that work? It's like the all the head full thing. Yep. Although I'm sure the card that the instruction part is gone. Right. Ooh, it's dark in here. It's Sorry. Very dark in here. 
and they normally could see icebergs. They're trained to look for the way the waves crash along the bottom, but the sea was like glass. It was and completely it was calm. No moon. And so, yeah, no moon. And so, and they had no binoculars because some fool lost them. You know, I think that's like a three strikes situation. I wonder where the women and children first tradition came about. No. Very Is it colder in here it's than freezing in here? <gasps> There's a wall of ice. I'm going. It's real ice, Susan. It's I thought it was just a thing. <laughs> That's why it's so cold in here. Uh, yeah, we noticed the temperature. Wow. Wow. Uh, this is, wow. Uh, there is, seriously, there is a wall, an iceberg inside of this room, which is why it got so cold when we walked in. It's it's it feels like to fall in this water. Yeah. But man, okay, wow. That is amazing. I know. No, I'm just like... <laughs> the iceberg. The iceberg is <laughs> cracking me up. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm knocked out. The though. people on the boat heard the fatal strike in different ways. Ah, through the portholes, you saw ice rubbing against the ship's sides. And another first-class passenger said, just a dull thump. It seems like the workers, the ones that were under, thought it sounded like thunder. Right. The guy in the wireless operator thing didn't even feel it because he's on the very top. If you remember right. where that was. Right. The second class passengers literally saw the ice go across the side of the boat. And the first class passengers described it as a dull thump. <laughs> so even, was that dull thump? even the iceberg discriminated from class. That's, that's funny. <laughs> You know, I was thinking about this the other day. So you get off, and there's great drama, you know, and the, this fear, this scaredness, and then the, the grief of losing someone, and the ship is gone. Right. And here you are sitting in this little boat. You have, you don't know if the Marconi operator sent any messages. Mm-hmm. You have no idea if anyone even knows where you are. And it's dark. And it's dark, and it's cold, and, and you're, you're women, for the most part. Right. You, what do you, what confidence do you have that any ship's coming to get you? That's the part. Right. Even on you top of everything else. You haven't seen anybody you, out Because we know from now, it's like, why were they so scared? Like, Carpathia was right on top of it, but they don't know right. that there's anybody coming. And they're, they're people just died. Yeah. Or they don't know if they've survived. And um, that kind of explains, I think, why the lifeboats started to tie up to each other. You know, like, well, better shot at being, yeah. well, or better shot at being found See. if we're all together. Their stories of the passengers lining almost every wall. We were quite struck by a few of them. Ida Strauss and her husband were the owners of Macy's. They, she refused to get on the lifeboat with her husband. Um, the crew member refused to let men on board his lifeboat, so um, she stayed behind oh until they died together. Her age 12 is separated from her mother and two siblings in the loading of the lifeboats. Seeing Ruth still on the deck, her mother screams, Ruth, get in another boat. Ruth is put into lifeboat 13. Oh, wow. my God. Think about that, Mom, would you? Think about that, Mom. Yeah. Not not knowing really until the next day if her daughter has gone down with the ship. Yeah. And to see her scared 12-year-old daughter still on, Not knowing if she heard you. Mm. Oh, that's terrifying. Or if she was aggressive enough to actually get on a boat. See, even the musicians played until the last minute. Like, everybody on duty until the last minute. Just like in the movie. And they went down with the... They went down. None of the time he and the musicians survived. I keep thinking if you had laid the base down properly, you could have floated on it. (laughs) 
but it does have holes in the top, so you got to be real careful getting on. I'm making poop deck jokes, and you're getting all artsy-fartsy funny. God, I love that. I'm going to okay. look up why it's called the poop deck. Okay, so we've moved away from the day of the wreck. We've gone through all the, basically, the loading of the lifeboats. Um, we'll link you to a site that'll tell you more about that. It's hard to explain without, it's a lot of reading. Yeah. Um, not very many artifacts in there. And so now we're going to move to 73 years later, in 1985, when I was 15, she was finally discovered. Now, I've tested her name over and over to discover it. We're moving into the recovery section of the, which is probably where we're going to see a lot more artifacts, I think. Well, I have to 12,000 feet in water. That's over two miles, isn't it? Yeah. So you can't just, I mean, they had special equipment. They had to wait those years to develop the equipment that was capable of going down. Oh, my God. These pictures are so haunting. The picture's taken from the submersible. It's like a bench, like a deck bench is just sitting there. The wood's all gone. The bench is still sitting there where it landed. So the wrought iron, like in a park, like a park bench. Oh, and here it is in front of you. Wow. Oh, my God. Yes, From the ocean to right in front of us in the glass box. <gasps> Look wow. at all these dishes. I can't, I can, oh, wow. I can actually see you putting this on the wall of your house. Oh, yeah. They look like... Okay. It's intricate. There is a picture of all these casserole dishes in line. Oh, gratin dishes. Oh, gratin dishes. Hundreds of them lined up like dominoes. The cabinet stayed fine and went down with the ship and the cabinet got eaten away and the dishes stayed and they're still stacked. And they're right in front of us, stacked. There's a picture of them at the sea. There's a picture of them stacked and, and then they they're in a glass box right in front of us. Way. Shocking. So this is a gallery of things that are have been found as they were found and then they have them in a display case right in front of you. And then a non-Lego-worthy model of the same ship, the same size as the as the lovely one before, but it's wrecked. And it's placed exactly like the other one, only it shows what survived, and the whole middle part is just gone. You know, where in, if you've seen the movie, where it splits in the middle, where it rips and tears, that whole part's gone. It was just little pieces and didn't stay together. But they've reassembled it, what was left. Wow. And it's all rusty and decrepit and it's just brown. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Oh, the glory has gone. Yeah. Oh, what's that? Is it a piece of the hull? It's where the rivets were attached to the ship. Oh. Can you touch it? Yep, just barely. Yep. I touched part of the Titanic. Ooh, I'm going to do it. I touched part of the Titanic. This fragment was located on the starboard side of the ship between C and D decks. I have literally just touched a piece of the Titanic. That pastry in your hand. I'm going to do it again. Just because it's cool. (laughs) Now I need some Germex. How many people have stuck their hand in that hole? I know. You can't think like that. This is the Titanic. It's estimated that Titanic is going to collapse on itself between 40 to 90 years. It will not be there anymore. There's nothing they can do. There's nothing they can do. The artifacts, however, once they stabilized it, like this white porcelain and and all these things, the stock pots and everything that are up here, the full bottles of champagne are fine. 
but and there'll be artifacts of the ship itself is being taken by the ocean, by the bacteria, by the fungi. We have been given a boarding pass with a specific passenger's name on it when we came in. And then we traded boarding passes. <laughs> she wanted the one that went to Providence, and I got the one that went to Wichita, Kansas, which is actually the town where I was born, so it seemed appropriate. But uh, we've got a field trip ahead of us, so we're kind of waiting. But the passenger list of saved and perished, saved and lost, as they say, passengers, is up on the wall. And um, we're going to go see if, if uh, we, with our boarding pass, lived or died now. We both got third-class passenger boarding passes, so perhaps we are not, but we're both women, right? Our, our passes are both women. We have right. a better chance than the men. All right, well, let me see here what my name is. My name is Elizabeth Gladys Dean. Milvina! Rosemary Hunt and Mrs. Stanton Abbott. Mrs. Stanton Abbott. Rosemary Hunt was probably your maiden name. I think my person made it. Wow. That was a long oh, yeah, there's Melvina right there. There's a picture of Melvina. Oh, my gosh. My person has great her own. trade, Becky. <laughs> that was a great trade. Susan's going to try. Two field trips in here. I hope we have good eyesight. <gasps> Did you make it? Abbott was the first one listed. Oh, and that's yours? Yeah. Melvina Dean, my person, oh, was the last living survivor of the Titanic tragedy. She died at 97. She was born on February 2nd, 1912, which made her just months old. Uh, just months old. They were going to come to America on the Adriatic, but they were transferred to the Titanic. They were all placed in lifeboat 10. Well, all meaning Melvina, her mom, and brother. Her father was lost. Melvina did not know she'd been a passenger aboard the Titanic until she was eight. Wow. Ooh, but she worked for the British government drawing maps during World War II. That's pretty interesting. I think we need to move out of this <laughs> loudness. What? Can you tell how many people are here? <laughs> Let's check these up. Sorry. Okay, this... It's a shockingly cool story. Adventurer Howard Irwin booked passage aboard the Titanic. He was around, going around the world. I'm thinking of Leonardo DiCaprio's character here. Uh -huh. And the day before, he packed everything. But the night before he was supposed to leave, he was shanghaied and forced into labor aboard a steamer bound for the <laughs> Far East. His friend did board Titanic. His friend carried his stuff on board, thinking, well, my guy's going to show before we yeah. take off. He never came. Erwin eventually escaped his captors in Egypt, thus surviving the Titanic wreck. And his friend died. Lost. Wow. So he thought yeah. it was bad luck to get shanghai by Egyptians. <laughs> That's a shocking reality. <laughs> Oh, look, and it's depositing us into a gift shop. Tell Surprise, but I kind of might want to buy something. I know. Me too. Probably not a bear with a hat on. I don't want a bear. Ooh, you can buy china. Oh, I can get one of those. Replica china. I might be interested in a... Let me look at this book. Oh, you know what? Okay, here's the thing about the coal. I was just reading oh, about that. About the coal was declared a non-artifact and therefore was open game, like... And, it, you know, it wasn't considered oh, important enough historically. 
It's twenty-five dollars for a tiny piece of coal the size of your fingernail. Probably vacuum it up. But I will. I mean, that's super cool. You know, I have a picture. I have a piece of the Berlin Wall. That's cool. How'd you get that? My sister was there the year it came down as an exchange student, and she went to the wall. And a man, an enterprising capitalist, was there with a card table full of little hatchets. And for a couple of marks, you could go and take a hatchet of his. You could bang off whatever you wanted and just bring his hatchet back. Wow. That's pretty cool. Watch your purse. You're going to knock over a whole shelf of collectible mugs. Okay, I have to say, I have gotten um, this book from the library, not this book, but this uh, series of books, DK Eyewitness Books, and they're really, I mean, they're for kids, but they're yeah. really good. I mean, it's lots of graphics and interesting information and a layout very similar to, to Mary A. English Lord. Ooh, also, here's a good book, Titanic Names, a complete list of the passengers and crew revised with new information by Lee Meredith, and it is a... Um, a list, Whoa. but it'll tell you exactly if they know anything. They'll tell you all about it, where they came from, where they ended up, if they died, if they had children. It's just a simple list. They tell you stories like this. This Reverend Biles was on his way to conduct his brother's wedding ceremony. He was last seen giving last rites. He was lost at sea. His brother had the wedding as planned. The newlywed couple went home, changed into mourning clothes, and went right back to the church for a funeral for his brother, who was lost on the Whoa. Titanic. And you found that in like two seconds. Good. Oh my gosh, Vinolia. This is the commercial that I saw, or the ad that I saw. Vinolia Auto Toilet Soap. It smells like turn-of-the-century soap. It is very perfumey and very... Oh, it does. Um, Rosy. Yeah, soapy. Yeah, see, you know what? Of all the dinnerware, I have to tell you, I like the best. The best. I think it's because maybe as a as a society, we've gotten more accustomed to simpler, mm-hmm. meaning elegant. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, here the ornamentation. I mean, oh, I know I do like the first class blue and gold. I know, but really, I just think it would be really neat to have. But you have to imagine food on them. I mean. Just go to Pinterest. All the food is styled on usually on white plates. But that's a recent. I think we've gotten used to seeing simple yeah. meaning elegant, yeah. whereas to them this would just be like this is. Yeah. That's probably all of the gift shop. We're gonna go out and talk a little bit more once we're out of all the noise. We'll see you in a minute. Okay, so that was the Titanic exhibit. Did you like it? I did. What was it? My favorite part was the story about the guy that got um, kidnapped. I liked how they gave us the passenger names. Yeah, me kind of make it a little more personal. And then the ice wall rocked. Yeah. <laughs> didn't make me cry. I didn't cry either. I don't know why I didn't cry. I didn't feel like they had the personal element. Personal element, yeah. maybe. Maybe. Yeah. But you know what it was was a lot of posters with words on, and not as many artifacts as I probably would have liked. Mm. That's true. But it was still cool. Yeah, it was still pretty cool. And was it worth the? Uh, what was it? Twenty bucks. Yeah. So. We touched the Titanic, Susan. I know. We touched the Titanic. That's what $20 I think I'd hand over a 20 to touch the Titanic without anything else. Touch the Titanic. Okay, $20. goodbye. Goodbye. Right on the 100th anniversary. Yeah. Yeah, it is cool that, we, that it's here now. Did you remember that this museum had Princess Diana's wedding dress? 
on the date of Will and Kate's wedding? I think it was chance. I keep thinking it was chance. That they, had, mm-hmm. yeah, because he probably had to book it out so far in advance. Yeah, like what a crew that was. Yeah. It, um, you got in for free if you came the morning of the wedding, and I had stayed up all night mm-hmm. watching the wedding. Right, and then I just put clothes on and came down here. And got in with the masses. They had a big brunch. They had the wedding on big screens. Oh. It was good. I missed that whole part. I was just at home. But, yeah, people, I guess they opened it one or two, and there was a cocktail hour. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, or celebrate and the stuff wedding and with- celebrate the wedding. Yeah. Nice. And, yeah, it was neat. And there were tons of people here. And then right after it was over, you could go down to the exhibit for free. It was part of the package. Uh-huh. Yeah, so this museum's pretty cool. If you live anywhere near Kansas City or come through here, So thank you so much for listening. This has been an exciting field trip. It has been an exciting field trip. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks for joining us today as we looked back to our history in 2012. So come join us in our private Facebook group, the History Chicks Podcast Lounge, where we are talking about a lot more than just women's history and the subjects of previous episodes. We've kind of opened up the conversations to be a little bit more personal as we're all going through this situation worldwide. People come in to check up on each other, to share things they find were funny, share things they found were moving. And yes, we do do still talk quite a bit about women's history, especially subjects that we've talked about before. We fired our Goodreads book club back up, and a very brave listener named Sarah Donnelly has decided that she'd like to be our trivia master. And so far, she's conducted two Zoom trivia contests. It's really fun, and it's great to be able to meet listeners from all over the world. The last one that I was in, there was people from Sweden and Ireland and Northern Ireland. That's where Sarah's from. And there's another woman that was right down the road from me in Missouri. Go to our Facebook page, click on join group, and you'll just be asked one simple question. Answer that and you're in. You can join us on Tuesdays when we toot our horns and celebrate accomplishments that we're proud of. And then every once in a while, there's going to be another trivia contest, so keep your eye out for that. Thank you so much for listening to us today. Hang in there. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Bye.